Welcome to Pathways to Energy Efficiency and AEEE Production. I'm Soumya Tiwari, your host. Today, in episode 5 of our podcast, I'm joined by Ms. Shloka Nath, Executive Director of the India Climate Collaborative. She also leads the sustainability portfolio at Tata Trust, focusing on the organization's climate, energy, and environment work. During our discussions today, we will be talking about climate change and sustainable development. Welcome, Shloka, to our podcast. We are very happy to have you. Before we start, we request you to tell our audience about IECC's journey and how it works as a collaborative with climate-curious philanthropies and businesses. Hi, Samia. Um, thanks so much for having me here on the podcast today. Um, we're very excited to talk to you a little bit about all things climate. Um, the ICC is an India-led, India-focused platform of philanthropies, both corporate as well as private foundations, um, both in India as well as globally, um, who've come together to direct more action, more funding and visibility towards climate in India. Um, we're really looking to build the field of climate action here, um, as well as support the funders on their journey of um, looking to sort of expand and build their work around climate action in India. That's that's great to hear. So we'll quickly be coming to our first question. Um, climate change, as we know, is no longer our future. It is our present. So what will it take to prioritize climate action, um, especially if we we'll uh, take it in the context of India, where often while discussing climate action policies, uh, we forget the marginali marginalized communities um, and they're often ignored in the decision-making process. How do we ensure that those who matter the most are not left out? That's a really important question. I think we've seen the climate landscape evolve over the last decade from being a very niche topic to being really at the forefront of public and policy discourse. I mean, honestly, in just the last two years, climate change has been referenced in the finance minister's budget speech, as well as the president's Independence Day address. And that's really not something we would have imagined would happen 10 years ago. But you're absolutely right that action needs to happen much faster than it is happening today. To prioritize climate action, we do need to move the narrative around it. And for a long time, I think climate action was actually seen to be contrasting with India's development. So many of those concerns still remain, but the efforts of India's think tank community to develop a narrative around core benefits has actually shaped the way Indian policymakers look at climate action. And you can see this through India's ambitious commitments at the global stage, you know, whether it's net zero or ramping up renewable energy. So we really need to continue to evolve the way we talk about climate action by focusing on the solutions we have available to us, as well as outlining them in order of priority. We need to create champions for the cause with different spheres of influence from the private to the public sector. We need to look to put people and our economies front and center of these conversations, rather than only looking at this from an environmental lens. So things like that. And your point on marginalized communities really hits home because it is a piece that the ICC really grapples with. How do you equip communities to deal with climate impacts, to involve them in crafting solutions? And maybe I can speak to this really from, you know, um, a, a philanthropic perspective, since that is really our niche. You know, funders may have the resources, including finance and expertise, to be able to tackle big challenges but they don't always understand local context. So we at the ICC really believe in adaptive leadership. It's a model 
that relies on building trust. It's a system of constant feedback. And so for us, that manifests as funding the creation of resources and programs that can distribute the ability to solve, to give local communities and organizations agency in crafting and implementing their own solutions. So this includes the creation of data and tools that can better inform planning, as well as the capacity building required to help organizations be able to use these tools more effectively. It also involves running pilots to test the feasibility of certain solutions and to assess those bottlenecks that exist in scaling them up. So at every stage, we work with community-based organizations, whether it's CELCO or CSEI or WOTR, to have a feedback loop with communities that we're looking to solve for, because all we can do really is provide them with the resources they need. They are the ones who best understand what is necessary in their context and what they need. So this, we believe, is a critical way to enable scale. Um, no, we do actually agree on that. In fact, uh, just um, asking you the next question on your um, point of putting the economy first. Uh, inclusive economic growth is an effective means for reducing poverty and boosting prosperity. Um, yet most economic activity is impossible without adequate, reliable and very competitively priced modern energy. Um, so why is access to energy vital in the fight against poverty? And how can we do it sustainability, you know, uh, decreasing the impact that it has on the planet? So as you said, most of our modern world is based around access to energy from the basic ability to moderate temperature, to access to information through the internet, to alleviate poverty. Energy is actually a necessity, you know, not only for the latter in terms of access to knowledge and opportunity, but also for the, for the former. As the global climate moves towards greater extremes, we will need energy to safeguard people's health as well as to ensure their productivity. So by this, what I mean is we have technologies that can help us deal with weather extremes like ACs and heaters. But for communities that can't afford these technologies or spend a high proportion of their day working, you know, and or, you know, living outdoors, extreme temperatures can have a detrimental impact on their health and therefore their productivity at work. And these factors, if negatively impacted, can actually push them further into poverty. So energy is a critical tool for access both in terms of basic needs and in terms of access to systems of learning as well as finance and employment. And of course, we need to move to renewable systems of energy. As we are seeing in India, as well as many other countries around the world, we do need to develop adequate storage systems for these forms of energy. We do need to upgrade our infrastructure to be better suited to these new technologies. But most importantly, and no one knows this better than you, we do need to increase the efficiency of energy consumption so that we can do more with less. Because the thing is, we live on a finite planet. And while sources of renewable energy like wind and solar may be infinite, the technologies we rely on to harness them are not. They are constrained by factors like mineral inputs, you know, or land availability and disposal. So not only do we need to make our energy consumption more efficient, we also need to ensure that we make our energy infrastructure more circular than it is today. So the move to renewable energy alone isn't enough to tide over some of the grave threats we're facing in terms of habitat destruction and biodiversity loss, which are actually greatly affected by our constant demand for resources and, of course, the improper management of our waste. 
So when we talk about the circular economy, um, we also would want to focus on financing. While proven technologies and business models can, of course, increase access to clean, affordable, reliable energy, financing these projects and enterprises continue to be a persistent challenge in India. How does ICC work towards addressing this issue? If you can just share your inputs on that. So philanthropic capital actually has an indispensable role to play in the climate crisis, given its intrinsic ability to be patient as well as flexible, compassionate and ambitious. You know, donors can actually magnify investments through, for instance, the Clean Cooling Collaborative, where 21 funders pitched in 50 million USD over four years. This program is actually now projected to secure 4.2 gigafunds gigatons of carbon dioxide of emissions reductions and 960 billion USD in cost savings by 2050. So philanthropy can also achieve scale, especially in a country like ours, given its close connections with the expansive civil society sector. Most of India's leading think tanks, many of which inform the commitments put forward by the government at COP26 recently, have actually been nurtured and capacitated over the years through funding from international foundations. Yet, what we see is that domestic philanthropy has not engaged with climate change as deeply as they have with other sectors like healthcare and education, since it's a relatively new topic, quite complex, and has long timescales for impact. So what we do at the ICC is that we work closely with donors to guide them along this learning journey, and we create connections both within the domestic donor community and with their international counterparts who have a grasp on these kinds of issues. So you can see this through the role international philanthropies played at COP26, for instance. Rockefeller Foundation, IKEA Foundation, the Bezos Earth Fund, they all launched the Global Alliance for People and Planet, which aims to mobilize 100 billion USD of public and private capital over the next decade towards green energy. Bloomberg Philanthropies launched a campaign to close a quarter of the world's remaining coal plants. And 17 funders pooled in with governments to invest 1.7 billion USD towards indigenous communities as part of the global pledge to end deforestation. So we do want to help domestic donors reach this point as well, because finance is so critical for solving these challenges. But philanthropic capital alone isn't enough. It's just a lever to enable change. At the ICC, we bring funders together, pool resources, and then work closely with our wide network of ecosystem partners to understand where are the gaps in the space? What are the critical sectors that need to be solved for? What are the bottlenecks preventing scale? And so a good example of this work actually, Samia, is our, is our work on coal chains. So for the agriculture sector, cooling underpins the ability of millions of farmers to improve their livelihoods and resilience in the face of climate-induced disasters. However, inadequate access to farm-level coal storage facilities contributes to a high proportion of post-harvest agricultural losses and adversely affects our farmer incomes. Building out sustainable coal chains is critical, not only to enable resilience for farmers, but also to avoid future emissions from conventional technologies. So we began our work by supporting Selco Foundation to pilot three innovative community-level DRE-based coal storage pilots in Odisha. And these pilots are demonstrating the impact of these solutions on horticulture producing farming communities. And it's measurable in terms of increase in farmer income and reduction in post-harvest losses. 
However, having said that, there are many barriers that stand in the way of scaling up these solutions. Things like high upfront costs, access to financing, poor market linkages. So to understand how to solve for these challenges, we have commissioned a comprehensive study to assess schooling needs at a cluster level and design community-based business models that can propel these solutions to scale. The data from this study will inform the, the blueprint for our initiative, which aims to play a really catalytic role in improving access to affordable DRE-based schooling at or close to the farm gate. So this is the approach we take to not only direct more funding to the space, but to ensure that this funding is able to solve for bottlenecks and involves the target communities, communities in the solution creation process. I think ICC is doing a path-breaking work in energy and access. Uh, but can you shed some uh, light on what is the role of a collaborative for just energy transition? And why, according to you, is triple sector leadership critical in mitigating the climate crisis? So I think to solve um, a challenge as large as climate change, we need all hands on deck because every stakeholder from the government to business to civil society is involved in the problem and therefore in the potential solutions. And these leaders inspire each other to take action. So we need to really cultivate individuals who can publicly advocate for and implement solutions towards these causes. The ICC has also been focusing on just transitions and how to ensure that communities that rely on fossil fuel-based industries for their livelihoods are not left behind as we transition to new, cleaner sources of energy. Our unique position as a collaborative actually allows us to solve for many different kinds of challenges, given our wide network of implementing partners. It also enables us to create platforms where different stakeholders can interact, can find synergies, can share knowledge. And to enable a just transition, we're actually planning on using our role as a collaborative to create a multi-stakeholder platform for just transition in India one that involves all key perspectives to co-create you know, roadmaps, to build policy momentum, to cultivate champions for the cause. We want to fill knowledge gaps through evidence and research, and we want to feed it into the planning and implementation of solution pathways. And we're hoping to also test the feasibility of solutions through pilots to gauge if they can be scaled up by co-creating solutions with local communities and civil society actors. And finally, we're also looking to deploy strategic communications to enable influential stakeholders to understand, engage with, and commit to a just transition for India. Right. ICC is focusing on decentralizing the climate action and, you know, um, understanding grassroots level uh, issues and co-creating solutions. Uh, in the air quality convening held last year, one priority was to increase resources for cities to take action on mobility, infrastructure, energy solutions. So what pathways do you feel will help us achieve this and how big a role will philanthropic money play here? So philanthropic capital is a crucial lever in solving for the array of challenges we face in the climate sector. It's specifically powerful because it's flexible enough to be spent on a variety of different things from roadmaps and research to on the ground implementation, not regulated, you know, by as many constraints as public capital, for instance. It also doesn't require a return on investment, unlike private capital. It's inherently compassionate in nature. You know, it prioritizes the well-being of communities as well as nature. So because of this, philanthropy is actually well-suited to solving for gaps and bottlenecks where other funders can't go or where other funds can't go. And that can enable other sources of money to actually flow into the sector. 
There are several interventions that grant capital can support to further action on mobility and infrastructure and energy. And one, one thing is to pool funding. Since grant capital is limited, funders can do more when they come together. The clean cooling collaborative piece that I mentioned earlier is actually a great example of this. Another critical thing funders can do is actually invest in innovation because de-risking projects can help to attract more capital. So we saw this in the renewable energy sector, for instance, where development banks provided guarantees for nascent technologies so that traditional banks would be willing to lend to them. And now, of course, renewable energy is a mature sector. So coming in at that early stage can actually have a really big impact. The other thing we see um, that's really necessary and what grant capital can do is, is build sector coalitions. It can break silos in the climate sector. Funders play a critical role in bringing different actors together to collaborate and share resources and to work faster and more efficiently. Right. Um, from an investor's perspective, uh, why is it essential to incorporate environmental, social and government governance consideration into their business measures? And what are some ways that they can actually achieve it? So increasingly, investors are becoming more conscious of the sectors they invest in, as well as actions of companies in their portfolios. They understand that engaging with companies that have sustainability mandates can often reduce their own risk and liability. There's a Harvard Business Review study, actually, that interviewed top executives across global firms like BlackRock and even government pension funds. And they found that across the board, ESG was a top priority. So there is a clear shift in the global landscape towards sustainability and responsible businesses. In addition, sustainability and climate change have actually become mainstream high priority issues on a global scale over the last decade. And they are especially important for younger generations. So this is already having an impact as the workforce and the consumer base evolves with this new mentality. And ESG can actually drive share prices up as demographics shift. Despite this, in a 2020 survey conducted by ENY, 46% of investors found a challenging disconnect between ESG reporting and financial information. So to date, most companies globally and in India have been treating ESG efforts like a cell phone case, you know, something added for protection, in this case, protection of the firm's reputation. And Indian corporate leaders really need to replace this mentality with an ambitious and differentiated ESG strategy if they want to see real financial dividends. Too many companies have embraced a box-ticking culture that encourages the adoption of increasingly standardized ESG activities, many of them created by analysts and consultants who rely on industry benchmarks and best practices. Those activities may well be good for society and the bottom line, but they're not enough. Companies must move beyond box checking and window dressing. So in a world that increasingly judges them on their ESG performance, they must look to more fundamental drivers particularly strategy to achieve real results and to be rewarded for them. Right. Um, so uh, the, the question I want to ask here is, uh, Shloka, of course, you have an, a stellar academic record and, you know, great credentials. And of course, you have a lot of knowledge and passion for the subject of climate. But how did it all start? Like what initiated your journey to climate? Can you give us some idea about what that path was for you and, and why climate? I think, um, Soumya, it's, it's a great question and one I ask myself very often um, because, you know, sometimes working in the space can sort of really, really feel quite existential. 
um, and full, filled with angst. But I also feel like I've met the most inspiring people in my career who are working in this space and, and you know, their sort of dreams of the future and what it could be, I think, are, are sort of what keep all of us going or moving forward, really. Um, I actually stumbled into this career path um, really as someone who grew increasingly concerned about the, the changes we were witnessing around us. I, you know, used to be a journalist. Um, I, uh, you know, also worked uh, in the space of financial inclusion in my journalism career. And I was very focused on issues at, you know, the bottom of the pyramid and was very drawn into uh, policy as a result. And, um, you know, my work always also had a lens of sustainability that had been applied to it throughout. But over time, um, I think that appreciation for this sort of grand challenge, as it were, um, you know, started to grow even further. And I realized that climate is really such an overarching quality of life issue. It's one that touches upon nearly every other development sector work or perspective. And that we're really at this fundamental juncture in the history of this country, in the history of the world or the planet, as it were, and how we choose to build um, our futures is really, um, you know, this is the pivotal moment in time. And that can be a very empowering feeling if, um, you know, you start really asking the right questions, i.e. what can you do to sort of um, to, to help or what can you do to sort of build a different future than the one that we've been building in the past. And there was this opportunity that, you know, came up to work in philanthropy, to build out um, the Tata Trust's focus around sustainability. And in doing so, we realized along the way that this was a sector-wide issue in terms of, you know, driving more force and momentum towards climate action, as well as reducing the entry barriers for philanthropy to work on climate action. And so it really evolved to, um, you know, I think a point where we understood that, you know, while we as an institution, i.e. the Tata Trust could continue to grant make in this area, um, we would be far more impactful if alongside that, we also build a platform or an institution that would serve to build the ecosystem around us. And that's really where the dream of the ICC was born. And, and of course, as they always say, the rest is history. Um, but just to be honest with you, it really developed and came through a passion. Um, I don't have a background in climate science. I, I'm surrounded by the smartest people in the world at the ICC who you know, really are climate experts and have devoted much of their lives to this problem. And I feel grateful for that privilege every single day, as well as, of course, partners like yourself who work in this space and, and the great privilege that I have to work with all of you. But for me, it, it very much evolved um, through a sense of urgency and need and a passion and, and a set of skills that I could bring to, to this space um, at the time. No, I do. I think your passion for climate action is very infectious and I think it will inspire a lot of our listeners. So as we wrap up this conversation, uh, is there any parting thought, a key takeaway that you might have for our audience? What is the one thing you'd love for them to keep in mind even after they move on from uh, hearing this conversation today? I think just referencing what I said earlier that, you know, um, hope is an important lever in this uh, in this battle, as it were, you know, to, to address climate and its impacts that, 
very often we we can be dragged down by a great deal of cynicism especially when you work with science or facts or figures and numbers um you know there is there is a lot of gloom and doom around the climate space and the inevitability or the presumed inevitability of you know where we're headed and of course there is a great deal of worry but my sincere advice would be you know there is also just as much cause for optimism or hope i i am in you know sort of uh, i <laughs> have to be honest i'm a complete sort of incurable optimist um and i do believe that we have the fundamental ability and power to transform our economies and the way the way we live and the way we think about the world around us and our futures we honestly don't have a choice so my my real advice as i said is is you know just bring in the the, the sort of hope and the inspiration to what you're doing because um that's what will get you through sort of you know the tough the tough periods or the times when you feel like you know not enough is being done no i think that that is a very key takeaway for of course us as well hope is a very important lever when of course working in the climate space um so with that i would like to thank you it was a pleasure having you with us on our podcast indeed a lot of key takeaways for us as well as our audience over here um so thank you and for all of us uh, who are listening to us and who are who have joined us uh, we hope you enjoyed our podcast and uh, please be sure to subscribe and engage with us on social media until next time uh, take care and be safe and shloka thank you again very much for joining us thank you for having me